0: Today on The Lowdown, a Down syndrome podcast, DSR therapists and teachers give us a lowdown on lessons they learn while working with people with Down syndrome. Over to you, Hannah Marla.
1: Thanks, Danielle. Hi there, and welcome to The Lowdown. I hope you're well. I'm Marla Folden, and I'm here today with my fabulous co-host, Hannah Mahmood. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Marla. How are you? <laughs> Ooh, I'm... I'm ready. I'm fired up. Yeah, this is going to be a good one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It absolutely will. Today's episode could have many titles, actually. We could call it Hindsight, or What We've Learned, or Ooh, I Wish I Saw That Coming. Um, You get the idea. Today, we're combining the clinical experience of a whole panel of our staff to discuss our sort of clinical lessons learned for topic areas that come up again and again. And today, we have representation from SLP, OT, Behavior, Counseling, and Education, All of our panel members have been working with people with Down syndrome for at least a decade, which makes us all feel really old. We actually added it up before we started Mm -hmm. today, and it's a combined, how many?
2: 79 years combined experience.
1: That's a lot. That's a lot of years. Yeah. So we've been doing this for a minute, you know. Um, The point is, yeah, it's been a long time, and we've seen some of the same situations play out repeatedly And our purpose for this episode is really to galvanize anybody who's kind of on the fence about tackling an issue that their child or student is experiencing, who might be thinking like, well, this will probably go away eventually. Mm -hmm. So if that's you, then tune in. Tune
2: in. Exactly. And we are going to work our way through a few topics here. Um, We'll have an interdisciplinary chat about what we've observed, when the topic area is managed. And then compare it to when it's left unaddressed and what kind of results from that. Um, I do, Marlon, I do want to put a disclaimer here that if you have recently received a diagnosis that you're going to have a little one with Down syndrome or you've just welcomed a little one into your family, this episode may not be for you at the moment. We want you to just take in the loveliness of your little one and maybe come back to this episode a little bit later when you're kind of ready to hear some more of this information. Um so yeah let's dive right into this for the sake of time all of our guests are repeaters on the lowdown so we're very happy to have them back but we thought it would be great for our listeners to just get a quick little intro from everybody so would you guys like to state your name and your role at the DSRF so we'll start off with you
3: Okay I'm uh, Susan Fawcett and I'm the director of behavior therapy and family support here at DSRF um and
4: I'm 19 of the 78 Oops. years Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. My name is Riley Rosebush, and I'm the senior SLP at the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation, and I have been here for almost 10 years. Amazing. Love this. Hi,
5: I'm Eleanor Stewart. I'm the director of education programs and services, and I am 14 of the
6: 79 years? 79, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And lastly... My name is Danielle McKinney. I am the senior teacher at the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation, and I have been here for almost 11 of those years. Wow.
2: You guys are getting some good, good information today Mm -hmm. from all this group. We're Mm -hmm. very excited.
6: Um, All right, guys, are you ready to dive in?
2: Should we do this thing? All right, so let's just start by talking about behavior. It's a huge topic Lots of parents are worrying about, worrying about it, asking questions about it. Let's just start off with education for fun. Um, what have you guys observed um, when tricky behaviors are um, strategically addressed
5: in your line of work? Well, I'll start, Danielle. Um, I think I'd say when, when they're strategically addressed, so there's a plan. And there's a yeah, I think I think it's always important to say that the plan doesn't always work immediately.
7: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
5: And mm-hmm. that it's really good to have a support team where you can vent and talk about when the plan doesn't work mm-hmm. and make those kind of micro adjustments. And usually it is just like one little tweak you need to make, whether it's where you put your chair, where what mm. activity you start with or what reward you're using. Um, but when you get to, um, apply a plan that you've put some thought into and some collaboration, yeah, it's, it feels really good and rewarding. And especially from a teacher's point of view, um, you are able to have attention and that's what, you know, that's our biggest focus is trying to get our students to attend to what we're trying to teach and learn. And then from there you start to see progress. Mm
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess um, knowing where the plan came from and what is causing or possibly causing the behavior um, is always a good place to start. Uh, usually, it's about motivation and addressing you know all the things that contribute to um, a motivated learner are uh, usually where we start. Yeah, but also realizing that yeah, the plan doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. Um, And sometimes it's our fault, right? It's not about, um, yeah, it's more so about us having the knowledge and and understanding of what we can do to make a successful Mm -hmm. learning experience.
1: And sometimes kids yeah. surprise you, right? Sometimes you're like, okay, I've made the coolest thing ever. And the student is like for <sighs> yeah. sure going to love it because it's so unique and like individual to them. And then they hate it. And you're like, oh, what? Why? And that does happen. Like sometimes you try your best to like get all the motivation mm-hmm. and for whatever reason they had a bad sleep or whatever. And it's not the day for that. But you can try again. Yeah, mm-hmm. same yeah. thing.
2: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the thing, like, it's important to kind of also consider how addressing these things can impact their participation, like, whether it's short term in the session or long term. So kind of m- moving over to you, Susan and Riley as well, please, every, everyone feel free to chime in as you need to. Um, what happens when behavior isn't worked on? Like, does it just go away? Or, you know, like the, the perception is very different from the reality. So what what are your thoughts on yes, that? Yes, and
3: I'm so glad you asked that. Does yeah. it go away? Because actually, I would say, in most cases, no, mm-hmm, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things that, you know, I really would love to get across here is that Our little, when kids with Down syndrome are small, they're extremely cute. They're Mm -hmm. very charming. Um, You can pick them up and move them if they're not doing what you need them to do. But you have to keep in mind that those cute, charming little kidlets are going to get older and bigger, and they don't necessarily grow out of problem behavior like typically developing kids often do. Mm -hmm. And so it's good to have some strategies early on.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, You did mention that, you know, it's harder for our guys with Down syndrome to grow out of these behavior compared to like their typically developing peers. Like what is the rationale behind that?
3: Yeah, so they definitely have a tendency to develop bad habits or be more rigid, um, and then it's just really harder to break those habitual patterns mm-hmm. um, in our kids compared to typically developing children. And another thing that I think can be tough for parents, especially if they have um, kids or, or educational professionals or other therapists as well, if they're used to kids who um, have you know typically developing brains, Uh, is there is a big difference between the ability to negotiate with those Mm -hmm. kids and to reason with them, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. whereas that approach doesn't work for behavior Mm -hmm. for kids with Down syndrome.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a few things that come to mind with that, which are sort of playing to the child's emotions or you're making so-and-so feel bad or when you do this, I feel blah, 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 that, that does not work Does not work for hard. our students. It's not an effective strategy, even though it might work with other kids of a certain age fairly well. Um, it exhausts, I can see parents who are really tired out trying to explain why you can't do this because it makes mom mad yeah. and, you know, try different, not harder. It's that it doesn't work very well. Mm-hmm.
4: Definitely mm-hmm. not. Yeah. I also think that, you know, and this is something that you talk about a lot, Hina, but the importance of understanding the executive functioning development Mm -hmm. um, really helps, yeah, to get your mind around why some of this learning is going to work out differently. Mm -hmm. And a big thing to For people to just keep in mind is um, differences in inhibition, so leading to more impulsivity. And that just takes a different approach than it would for somebody who has otherwise typically developing executive functions.
2: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I'm so happy you brought that up, Riley, because there's all these little subcomponents that we take for granted because they kind of work well for a typically developing person. but. Inhibition, initiation, you know, like all those things are playing into just a simple act of, you know, doing like one little activity. So multiple playing parts. Yeah, that's great. Um, Let's talk about why it's important to work. Behavior strategies, you know, like we this is something that I'm sure we can all agree on, like we work on strategies in the clinic at DSRF and then parents go home and they're like, doesn't work at home or, you know, or like what what where what's the missing piece here like why is it hard for it to generalize in a different environment
3: um well I would say I mean one of the reasons why it's hard to generalize I mean I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put it out there right Do away it. is that um parents aren't doing the strategies correctly right yeah. so Um, they, and they also, I think, have a tendency to sometimes try something once or twice and it doesn't quite work. And so they kind of give up on it.
7: Mm -hmm. Um,
3: but oftentimes you have to use a behavioral strategy many times before Mm -hmm. it takes effect. um, because you're, you're now interacting with your child in a different way. Right. And so they, the, the kids have to be able to, to get used to that. Um, but, but learning from the, you know, from the therapist at DSRF or, or your, you know, um, therapist who you work with or your educational professionals and really getting down to what are the components of that strategy that make it work,
7: Mm -hmm. right?
3: So that you know that you're implementing it effectively at home Mm -hmm. because there's lots of little, none of this, none of the positive behavior support strategies are rocket science. They're, they're definitely not, but at the same time, there's, little pieces to each one that make mm. it crucial that you carry mm. all of those out. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely, you know, parents a hundred percent can get the hang of these things. I've seen it. I think we've all seen that happen time and time and time again, which is great. It just takes a little bit of, it takes a little bit of learning
1: on the parents part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I, I think, think one I, thing that can get overlooked too is that sometimes or well often A child's behavior gets worse before it gets better. And so it might feel like it's backfiring because actually the behavior has really intensified as the child's trying their own strategy to get what they want harder while you're trying your new thing harder. And there's a negotiation (laughs) period in there between in the sort of social dynamic between the parent and child that can feel rocky if you're not expecting that to happen. And Mm -hmm. that's a really good point, Marla. There's definitely a
3: you know a period where it's it's actually a law of behavior that you may see an increase in problem behavior when you change things up yeah. and and so there is definitely an element of you just got to ride it out mm-hmm. right you could, you just have to sometimes
6: mm-hmm. yeah i think there's an element of kind of trusting in the process and mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. expecting that um, instant change to happen mm-hmm. and to kind of stick with it um, it's also hard in the family situation when there's Very so hard. many other things going on and it's hard to see the progress the same way that we would see it in our short um, time with students. So um, I think there's definitely a lot of things that are, are kind of more complicated mm-hmm. <laughs> for the family. And um, it's great if we can let them know that this is normal and this is what's going to happen and just stick with it. Please trust us kind <laughs> of thing. Yeah, yeah and that's a, yeah. that's a
3: great point Danielle, because honestly, it's it is can be really overwhelming for families. So Mm -hmm. I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, It can definitely be overwhelming. So in that case, picking one strategy, getting good at it, and just going to town, you can you can make a lot of progress with kids' behavior with just using Mm -hmm. one or two strategies at Mm -hmm. home. Mm
4: -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also think that you know here and at clinics, we have the benefit of having almost like an ideal. Environment. Yes, we, absolutely. We can, we you know, we knowing what we know in our background, we can set that up kind of from the beginning. So, you know, when a child comes to a new environment like the DSRF or another clinic, and things are set up um, ideally to <laughs> suit their learning needs, um, of course, things go a little bit smoother. So, um, understanding the elements of the environment that are different in the clinic versus at home can really help, yeah. um, I think. And also, you know, speaking back to what Susan said about how children or people with Down syndrome are just more likely to become a bit entrenched in certain routines and, you know, have expectations. Um, That applies to the parent and child relationship as well. So Mm -hmm. if you've always responded one way, they're going to just expect that to continue. And it really, a lot of the work um, that is helpful and I think needs to be done is in in actually teaching, spending time with teaching mm-hmm. the child the new expectations and new routines or whatever it is that you're working on that is, a, you know, kind of has to do with the behavior. Mm-hmm. So, you know, bringing in any of those learning strategies that we know work for all sorts of learning. So visual, social stories, things like that can really mm-hmm. kind of get at those, mm-hmm. um, those last pieces that are making the home Absolutely. environment generalization trickier.
2: Yeah. And I um, love this one piece I wanted to take out of what you just said is that parent-child relationship. So the one thing that I've learned in my time here is that the rapport piece is really important before yes. introducing strategies. Yeah. So uh, one of the reasons why it's a bit easier for us to do it here is because we've built that trust and that rapport with, with, the, with the student or the client, mm-hmm. right? So... Would any of you like to speak to the importance of that rapport first before implementing any of these kind of Mm -hmm. tricky strategies?
3: I mean, I love talking about that. Do it. (laughs) Start us
2: off. (laughs) Excellent.
3: It's really important. If your child sees you as someone who's warm and loving and fun to be around, then they are going to behave better, period. And that goes for kids in a classroom as
1: well as kids at home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a saying that goes with it, which is collect before you direct. Like mm-hmm. I always have this thing in mind of like, get this kid on my team. Like we are going to be going through this together. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be some back and forth negotiating around like how many times we're going to practice, what things we're going to practice, what order the kid can say no. And I'm fine with that, but we need to stay kind of on the same page. Um, because if we get too much into like this push pull of, I want this thing, you want this other thing, nothing gets done. Yeah. It's it's really hard.
2: And pick your battles
6: on any given day, right?
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah,
6: mm-hmm. that kind of reminds me, like going back to why it might be a little bit more tricky in the home setting mm-hmm. is about the team. And, you know, in the clinical setting, it's one person on yeah. the kids team. Yeah, <laughs> At home, it's who knows how many. And if not everybody's on the same page um, with, you know, implementing the strategies or even just allowing them to be tried. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be more complicated for sure. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, making sure that everyone has the same kind of knowledge and, and plan.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I like that Susan mentioned the fun piece. A lot of people, I don't know about you guys, but a lot of people are like, just being fun is going to make a difference. Have you found that? I know, Eleanor, you talked about this a bit earlier, but like to make things motivating, but that fun piece is kind of really important too, right?
7: Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, I think that gets undervalued a lot, especially in education. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, I think one thing that I've noticed is, I think, especially in education, when you're trying to teach specific skills and you're assessing, you're trying to show progress, um, it's really important to not rush those, you know, those first three or four sessions with, that you have with a new student or, mm-hmm. or you know, or when you're at home working on sort of skill development like to not rush right into the teaching part right mm-hmm. really focus on the fun and setting the kind of setting up the the expectations and that energy and keeping it fun and then you know slowly moving <laughs> into that because I think as especially from our point of view where you feel you know you're you're seeing these clients or, or students individuals weekly and you know that families are putting money into this into this mm-hmm. service and you you, you know, there's this kind of balance of, OK, the importance of getting to skill development, working on learning those skills. But in the long run, it really, really is really beneficial to just focus those kind of first three sessions on rapport and relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool to see now all this. There's so much out there on trauma-informed practice Mm -hmm. and trauma-informed practice is all based on the importance of rapport and relationship Mm -hmm. building and being predictable Mm -hmm. and that's what we do Mm -hmm. here so I think it's good that this is getting out kind of to the bigger because I think bigger audience because it benefits Mm -hmm. everyone
6: Mm -hmm. yeah not only um, developing rapport but you're also learning what The child's interests are and the things that are going to work best for them when you do get down to the more structured learning and planning for, um, yeah, for.
1: Mm-hmm. progress and you get to see mm-hmm. things too like when they really love doing something how long does that last mm-hmm, yeah. you know with their favorite things are they playing with that for like a whole session or is even their most favorite activity still going to be five minutes because you it really changes how you set up a session and how you plan to teach mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. Um, when you can see how long somebody can engage with something that's their favorite because you know that your teaching stuff might not be their favorite so you have to kind of adjust
4: yeah
7: hmm
4: Um, And, you know, I think going back to the original question of rapport, uh, you know, I'm thinking of all the different parenting styles there there are out there and all the parents I've met. And, you know, lots of people don't necessarily describe themselves as fun. That's (laughs) so true. And I think that's, you know, it's okay. There's all sorts of different ways to be a great parent. Um, So I think the other pieces, in addition to fun... think about um, if you know fun isn't necessarily your strong suit um, are just like empowering the child making them feel empowered Mm. making them feel involved in Mm -hmm. like the family and their own choices as as much as um that um you know that that is valuable to them and I think all like people and kids want to you know they want to feel from their family and from people they're working with like they're seen and heard and and being listened to in whatever Mm. way so Mm -hmm. um you know speech pathologists, um, we are used to, um, find trying to find out what people are trying to express, even if they're not using words and trying to like kind of clue in and yeah. zero in on some of that stuff, I think yeah. helps kids feel like, you know, they come here and they feel like, oh, like they get me here. And yeah. If you can find a way to build that and it yeah. helps mm-hmm. with the rapport Because them well.
2: communicating fun mm-hmm. could be very different for each person, right? And mm-hmm. sometimes we're not honed in on those signals. And I've noticed that too, that sometimes if one person communicating, one way is, it's, you know, it's different than another one. But if it's getting missed, then the frustration increases. Mm-hmm, damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to touch on one more little piece with behavior, which was the idea of a preventative behavior management. So I know that uh, the philosophy, and Susan, please, you know, feel free to jump in, but it's, like the model is preventative here. So all the training programs, as much as possible, like your parent tr- um, training program for behavior support is a preventative model. So like you said earlier, it may seem that this little tiny thing is super cute and not an issue when there are two or three, but it could develop into one. And we need, kind of need to... So yeah, did you want to talk a little bit about the preventative aspect of sure? You're just touching on all my favorite topics. Oh, okay,
7: (laughs) so
3: so, yeah, definitely preventative is the way to go, or preventative slash early intervention. Um, as soon as you start to see little things happening, because again, you know, the pick and up and move them stage is one stage. <laughs> yeah. But if you can't get beyond that, then, you know, then we have nine year olds with Down syndrome who are being pushed in strollers, mm-hmm. right? Because they will run off somewhere in public or they're not safe, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So it's really important to take a preventative approach. Mm -hmm. And in that parent training program you mentioned, the way that I sort of, you know, teach parents about that is that we take that approach to a lot of different things in terms of our health, Mm -hmm. right? So if you think about this last couple of years with COVID, we all did things to prevent ourselves from getting Mm -hmm. COVID, right? The Mm -hmm. hand washing and the social distancing and, you know, vaccines and all those kinds of things. You know, because it's way easier and better for you to prevent something from happening in the first place Mm -hmm. than it is to, you know, get the thing and then have to deal with it after. And Mm -hmm. that same approach works for behavior. Right. Mm -hmm. Because if you can prevent the behavior from occurring in the first place um, when the kids are young and by learning a few positive behavior support strategies early on, that's going to put you in better stead than having to deal with severe entrenched problem behavior when the child is older, right? Which is, it's not like you can't do anything about that. I don't want to give that message, but it's a lot harder, Mm -hmm. right? You then need intensive um, individualized instruction, essentially, yeah. mm-hmm. um, from a board-certified behavior analyst. Mm-hmm. Because, but, but if you get at it early, you don't need that level of intervention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing to keep in mind there, just a slightly different take on prevention, is thinking about, in any given situation... It's actually also better to just prevent problem behavior from occurring in a situation where you know that it's likely to happen, mm-hmm. right? right? So being a bit more specific now, if you know that in a grocery store, you're that's sort of my classic example because I <laughs> grocery stores watched, are hard; <laughs> they're so hard, and I've watched a few kids in them now. So, um, but it's way easier to think about how am I going to prevent my kid from grabbing everything off the shelf. Yeah. And from you know um, taking off down an aisle, or from going in a freezer, you know, than it is to it to, to actually deal with it once it's happening. Yeah. And you know, honestly, the parents also then are saving themselves some embarrassment too, mm-hmm. right? And some stress mm-hmm. if they can if they can put strategies in place. And there are tons of strategies you can use
1: in those instances. Yeah, and it's it's taking things that parents do automatically anyway. You know, every parent of a two-year-old is at the point where they're like, well, we're going to put locks on things to prevent my child from getting in the knife drawer. You know, all of those kind of things, they happen, but the strategy needs to be applied maybe more widely and broadly, probably for a longer period of time. So anticipating like, you know, I don't think my child's going to get into the knife drawer, but they might. So I'm going to and you know, work around that and try and stay a step ahead of it, which I grant you is very difficult to do when you're doing it all day. So yeah. I think that's the other thing. It's hard. It's- it is.
3: And that's the yeah. thing. Like doing doing things to prevent us from getting sick is hard too. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think we all love getting tons of exercise and eating plates and plates <laughs> of broccoli, but we do it. Okay. Well, maybe we don't eat plates and plates, plates of and plates. Yeah. But, but you know what I mean? Like those things aren't exactly easy, Yeah. but there's still, it's still a better way to go yeah. than getting very, very sick.
1: Yeah, right. And then having to undo all that—that's right. And yeah. we yeah. we can really speak from experience. We have families who have the very hard job of undoing when they have teenagers, and that is much harder than working on it when you have a little one, mm-hmm. and it takes much longer. Mm-hmm. And by that point, it's kind of seeped into many aspects of life. So if it was just problem behavior at home, well, now it's at school as well. And now we can't go places. Now we can't participate in activities that our family wants to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that does happen. We see it here. And that's why we're making such a deal out of it because <laughs> it's, it's really hard to watch a family go through that mm-hmm. for a long time after they realize it's kind of untenable.
3: Yeah. It is. And and Marla, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's something parents can look out for. Mm -hmm. So if you if you are a parent and you start thinking to yourself, I'm not gonna go to the grocery store with little Freddie because He's going to engage in problem behavior, yeah. and you start restricting places that you take your child. That mm-hmm. is a sign mm-hmm. that you need some positive behavior support mm-hmm. strategies, like stat. Yeah, right. You yeah. don't. That's the last thing you want to be doing: avoiding yeah. swimming pools mm-hmm. or malls yeah. or things like that, mm-hmm. because you know that they're not going to be well behaved once you're there.
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You're also, you know, you're going to limit the experiences that your child has mm-hmm. because even though you're yeah. associating that behavior with the grocery store, you're probably in the back of your mind thinking, well, maybe I also shouldn't go to X place. Mm -hmm. And so now you're not Not going to Mm -hmm. two things or three things or four things, and your child's just not getting that, you know, breadth of experience that typical children might be getting Mm -hmm. to learn about the world. And um, that really can affect, Mm -hmm. you know, language development and Mm -hmm. education, um, you know, prior knowledge that they need to learn new things. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it is, you know, as much as we were looking at the big picture of, like, where could this go if we don't address it now? It could also be kind of affecting the here and now.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and certainly it contributes to family sense of isolation. Mm-hmm. I mean, our I think our collective heart just Overall. breaks when we see yeah. families who can't go places. Yeah, um, safely. And or they have to do the sort of complicated tag teaming. I'll stay home with child A and you can go out with child B. Um, That's we don't want that. It's not good for anyone's
4: overall mental health either. Right. Yeah. I, you know, from my own limited experience as a new parent. (laughs) So one thing that I kind of tried to apply from my, you know, experience here mm-hmm. um and thinking knowing that you know with Susan or um somebody who's like a behavior professional is is um helping and trying to work on these things they they set up practice times so mm-hmm. you know it's a supported and um and kind of front loaded time mm-hmm. to go do something so uh what I did and I think worked well is is you know instead of just going to the grocery store and thinking like I'm going to get all my shopping done and yeah. everything's going to be normal yeah. um I we would we'll go and and I would think of it more as like a practice time, and, yeah, and and have you know you know reduced expectations for how much shopping yeah. we would do, for example, yeah. mm-hmm. but um, you know focusing on the behavior yeah. aspect. Yeah. Um, the goal is different in that. The case, goal is then, different, right? and yeah. thinking that you can, um, you know, it's worth it to take time to practice if something mm-hmm. is tricky and mm-hmm. it might seem like you're going slow or it's going really slow, but that effort like pays off. You're going to spend the time kind of one yeah. way or another. <laughs>
7: mm-hmm. No, I
2: love, mm-hmm. I love that idea, Riley, because it's like if you're going grocery store shopping, you're thinking I have to get this, I have to get home mm-hmm. in this time. So if it's just a practice period, then mm-hmm. you're not worried about all the extraneous stuff. You're just like, we're just going to go to practice. Not going to have to worry about getting groceries or getting home in enough time. So I think that's, yeah, a fantastic example. hmm. Um, I feel like this is going to be on your list too, Susan, because I feel like this is one of the things that as a therapist, I've learned and continue to learn and try to instill in anybody who wants to know how to work with people with Down syndrome, but the idea of positive reinforcement, oh, it is like probably one of the biggest things I've learned. And I still keep trying to remind myself how crucial it is and how undervalued it is. Yeah. Um, so take it away, panel, <laughs> who and I'll
3: talk let about somebody you? else go first. <laughs> okay. <try laughs>
5: Eleanor what are your thoughts on positive reinforcement Oh I was just going to say that, that <clears throat> it's also so much easier mm. Oh yes <laughs> mm-hmm. positive reinforcement than mm-hmm. to have to you know respond to a problem behavior mm-hmm. and and it makes in my practice and as a just like Riley as a new parent it's it's just um it's just a nice thing to do, and then you feel good about yourself too. And you're like, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. my child's doing something right, and I, mm-hmm. I get to talk about it mm-hmm. finally. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think we all we talk about the bucket a lot here, and if you can fill your student's bucket or your child's bucket with that positive reinforcement and just positive time, Susan likes to talk about that. You know, positive attention and positive interactions. That's mm-hmm really beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, I think from a teaching point of view, I think it's much easier for us to give positive reinforcement because that's our job and we're like, we're attuned to it and we're constantly, our job is to motivate the child to continue to do more. So I feel like we're doing it all the time. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, yeah, like I think when you're run down and exhausted mm-hmm. and tired, mm-hmm. it's really hard to see those, um, those moments or those seconds and um the much the more you can do to highlight them the mm-hmm. the um more likely that positive behavior is going to be repeated and seen more
1: mhm mm-hmm. and it does kind of affirm to both you mm-hmm. and the child that you're with that you again are on that same team and it's kind of acknowledging that like oh i mm-hmm. see you doing the right thing yeah. i'm really happy about that and that the more explicit you can make that and the more in the child's sort of currency and language right mm-hmm. so some kids love high fives you kind of kind of know what your kid's currency is what do they love to talk about do whatever and pay them in that currency right reward them mm-hmm. in the way that they like to be rewarded which sometimes is a little goofy and that's fine yeah um
6: <laughs>
2: yeah whatever just a smile sometimes yeah. is enough right yeah. Yeah.
6: yeah yeah i think too like also setting it up so that that positive reinforcement can be authentic. So you're setting up the situation so that they can be successful, mm-hmm. um, knowing you know maybe starting with something that's a little bit easier that they for sure are going to um, be able to achieve, and then providing that positive reinforcement mm-hmm. right away, Absolutely. so that yeah they really believe in you. That mm-hmm. it's that's real. a really good point. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and
5: that was well. I like that you brought up being explicit and specific mm-hmm. about what. There's a lot. Yeah, you often hear like, "Good job, great work."
1: Oh, and I do it too. Totally, I totally do it. Yeah, and then I'm like, Marley, you know better than that. Do that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What was good about it to say? Yeah. Um, So yeah, and I think we all know that we're not perfect by a long stretch, and we're continuing to learn in our careers. We don't expect anybody else to be perfect either. Yeah. But these are things to try to aim for to make your life easier, right? Yeah. I mean, sometimes
6: it's really obvious what the good job is, mm-hmm. and so yeah. a good job will do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but if, you know, the task is a little more complicated, then you want to point out exactly, like, I like the way you read, um, mm-hmm. you know, all the way to the end without stopping. Like, That's yeah. uh, something that we need to mm-hmm. point out is the purpose of a sentence, and mm-hmm. a period. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nerdy teacher <talking>. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, I feel like that was all. I mean, that's that's basically it in a nutshell, right? That that we should be doing those things. I think the main thing I might want to say about positive reinforcement as it relates to parents in particular. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're all teachers and Therapist sitting in this room. And so, A, we were taught to do these things. We know that behaviorally it's really important to do mm-hmm. these things. Mm-hmm. Um, we have all, we, we are, you know, convinced of it, right? We mm-hmm. don't need convincing that positive reinforcement is a good idea mm-hmm. um, and that it works really well to develop um, all kinds of uh, adaptive behaviors. Um, but I think for parents, it's not as, it's often not as, um, like, not something they naturally gravitate towards yeah. doing. I don't think, you know, in natural life, all of us go around Constantly. praising each other, right? <laughs> yeah. That's not something we do. Yeah. It's also not a way that a lot of us were brought up, mm. right? I know I was brought up with parents who, did not use a whole lot of positive reinforcement, mm-hmm. especially in the for- form of verbal praise, right? So, and I think that's true of a lot of, you know, the parents that we have around here now, right? Yeah. They, they weren't brought up in that way. And so it's not as natural a thing for them. And And I remember just being very struck by when I did do the, the project on... Um, on, you know, help developing the parent training program. And when I started, actually, I got this, of course, data on how much parents were actually praising their kids. And it was so low. It was just like, I I mean, I knew it was not going to be as much as we would all do it, but I was not expecting it to be non-existent in Mm -hmm. some cases. And Mm -hmm. so... I now just tell parents, like, that is my number one thing. If there's anything that you can do to improve your relationship with your child, it is praise them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And like Marla said, in various ways and and taking into account their particular currency and what they really like. Yeah. But just honestly, just do more of it. Mm-hmm. That's that's
1: the main, mm-hmm. main message
7: for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: I'm going to bump us to our next topic here, which is the friend of behavioral challenges. Um, and that is attentional challenges. And it's going to draw upon things that Riley's brought up already and mm-hmm. Hannah around executive functioning. But this time let's start with you, Hina, and OT. Um, how do you find attentional challenges like ADHD affect students' ability to learn in your sessions?
2: Mm-hmm. I think it's so important to first of all, understand what, ADHD is, right? I think we often there's so many perceptions always just like attention issues, but there's a attention component and then there's a hyperactivity component. Mm-hmm. So before we come up with a strategy for anything, we must first work on understanding what it is that we're trying to help with. Um and yeah, and Riley definitely my OT heart grew two sizes when Riley brought up environment and think of all the other things. Because as OTs especially, we really do like to think of the person and then their environment and then what we're asking them to do. So the environment piece is really important. Like, you know, in, in our sessions, um, you know, it's, it's a slightly artificial environment here because it's one-to-one attention. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like the perfectly, well, not perfect, but as close to perfect as possible workspace that we've created, right? So it's, mm-hmm. so those things are very hard to generalize to home or school. So then the goal is, okay, how do we figure it out in another environment how our students can be successful? So thinking about the environment, thinking about the person, right? And especially with our guys with Down syndrome, it's important to think about on that particular day, what are the things that are working for them and what are the things that are working against them? Mm-hmm. Um, and with the tension, it's it's hard because it's there's so much going on around us all the time, especially in a busy classroom. It's like the perfect example. Um, there's, you know, sounds, there's sights, there's other, you know, internal feelings where you're not feeling the greatest and you're trying to get all of that sorted in order to be able to do something. Um, So from an OT perspective, I know that I've learned that we really have to look at all three components in order to kind of help our students be successful. So Mm -hmm. thinking about them as people, um, you know, where they're expected to do the work and what's the work they're expected to do. Mm -hmm. Is it super complicated? Do they maybe need, you know, this is something that I've learned from our teachers at DSRF, which is like that scaffolding thing, like slowly working our way towards that goal. Mm Um, And then the hyperactivity piece is a whole other ball of yarn, right? Like, it's like, okay, how are we helping you get what you need? Um, I'm not going to do a full deep dive into sensory. There'll be another podcast episode about that. But um, thinking about the hyperactivity component and how can we help our, you know, our kids and our students Mm -hmm. be able to get their bodies in that space where their minds and bodies are working together.
1: Mm -hmm. And to provide some examples for the kinds of things that we do to modify that we have found work, we move furniture around Mm -hmm. before you get here, we are moving things. We're emptying out. Sometimes we really empty out our whole room, Mm -hmm. things that we know are going to be a problem. We throw that under the prevention umbrella and we say, well, we're just going to take that out and we're going to move this thing. We're going to, you know, hide the Barbie doll. If that's going to be a problem, we're going to put that in another room We're going to keep all of our activities in a tub and putting them out one at a time so we can Mm -hmm. focus in. That's a Riley Rose Bush special there. Um, (laughs) You know, and then when it comes down to practicing something that's new and hard, well, we're going to do what seems achievable. And we don't plan necessarily how many that is until we see the kid on the day because we need to take into account how much sleep have they had? How are they feeling? That's why we ask these questions because then we kind of recalculate and recalibrate how much are we gonna push today? Mm-hmm. What new things are we gonna try? Are we gonna skip that new hard thing that I wanted to do because you didn't sleep at all or whatever? Mm-hmm. You know, we we change things mm-hmm. every day depending
4: mm-hmm. on, you know, who's coming in that day.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's all about accommodations and adaptations, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm.
4: So I think it really helped me to start to think of attention as not just like one thing, like Mm if somebody's paying attention or not, it's not really binary, but rather it's like Mm -hmm. a collection of processes Mm -hmm. that's happening all at once. Mm -hmm. Hannah has a very happy look on her face. okay great Uh, you know so if you can think of you know a big aspect of attention um and a common metaphor is thinking of it as like a spotlight so what is your child's like spotlight on right now Mm -hmm. and if there's something you want them to be paying attention to you how do you like draw that spotlight over and um you know sometimes you might call it like how do you make like an attention vortex like how do you make something so interesting Mm -hmm. to them that it like sucks that spotlight over and keeps it for as long as possible um And, you know, uh, something I try to think about is, like, how do you, like, yeah, capture their interest, like, that kind of, like, (laughs) cowbell on it, like, situation so that, you know, it stands out. And we always say, like, if you want a person with Down syndrome, like, to learn something new, like, you need to make a visual to go with it. So, Mm -hmm. including, like, visuals in your teaching plan, um, if you can praise it, you know, they're going to, like, pay attention to it and learn about it. Um, All that is really helpful. Um, And really, if they can't, like, pay attention to it, then they can't, like, process it, they can't remember it, they can't encode it, they can't learn it. So it's a really good thing to think about um, when you're kind of trying to, you know, think about teaching something new overall. Like, how do you include all of these components? Yeah. Get at what they need to pay attention and therefore to learn.
2: Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And I think there's another component. There's the components to everything.
4: <laughs> that's the that's the tagline for this.
2: One. There's components to everything. Because With attention issues, it's like, you know, are their eyes able to focus on what they're doing? You know, so there's like so many little things that I think often um, we don't think about that could be And and I'm sure like kind of tying it back to behavior a lot of the times like, oh, they're just being stubborn or they're just not listening. They just don't want to do it. But it's like I don't know if it's a want thing, or is it more that they just can't and don't have the mm-hmm. ability, right, at that point in time to do it. So yeah,
1: yeah, and yeah, there are, there are many strategies. So we modify the environment, we make the learning goal task as exciting and as desirable as possible, but those aren't the only strategies. And we should make it clear that there are people with Down syndrome who also have ADHD and that medications for ADHD do mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. And we have seen it time and time again, where yeah. a child wasn't really able to gain very much that was meaningful from a learning environment until the tool of medicine was used to support them. Yeah. And when you think about your child's experience in school and if they need something like medication and don't have it, then their school experience is negative and they learn quickly to not like school because they get in trouble a lot. And the parents become very stressed out too, because all they hear about school is bad. Mm -hmm. And I I really don't like that situation. Um, That's a whole other topic about school home communication. Um, But thinking of undoing, you have a lot of undoing that needs to happen if you don't opt in on some of the tools that are needed. And then you have to reform a relationship with learning and education at a later time when your kid is 10, 12, 15. Um, and that's much harder. Again, it's much Mm -hmm. harder to do. So we, we would love for the relationship between the child and their education to be a positive one. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that requires tools that go beyond environment.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
7: Mm -hmm.
1: Have you guys in education seen a difference between when a child that has an ADHD diagnosis and then becomes, adds the tool of medication to their sort of tool belt? Have you guys noticed a difference in how much you can do with the child, how much they can gain from the experience?
6: Yeah, definitely. I've seen that or witnessed that a few times. Yeah, I mean. It works. <laughs> it, it does work. Yeah. It really
5: comes down to that. It works. Yeah, yeah. and we've also been on that journey with parents, right? Because right. there's a lot of fear around going on medications, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's totally yeah, yeah legit. And I think, um, yeah, and I think there's yeah, it takes a while to find the right dose and the right the right medication. And I think it, going through that journey, you really see the changes where mm-hmm. where yeah,
7: mm-hmm.
5: yeah, where there's a complete even just like the whole body just calms and they're mm-hmm. sitting at a table for more than five minutes where, mm-hmm. you know, previous to that, you wouldn't have seen mm-hmm. <laughs> <For> five <laughs> seconds. Yeah, yeah.
7: yeah. Or Just their
3: eyes. Sometimes just their eyes are able to focus yes, on one exactly. thing. It's not even their yeah. wiggly body. It's sometimes yeah. just there yeah. when they're yeah. not, I've seen kids mm-hmm. who aren't, medicated and then they and then they are and before their eyes were sort of like in their head was darting around everywhere right and how you can't learn like you can't
2: know and I think it's like even just like beyond sitting at a desk to do an activity just like navigating your environment Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. just stepping out into the playground or going to the mall like it's just their entire quality of life can be impacted for the positive if Mm -hmm. we take that
1: and families and families lives families too right because Mm -hmm trying to keep somebody safe, who's really, really impulsive, mm-hmm. um, and trying to make sure that they have a good quality of life is really ex- mm-hmm. extra challenging. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes like we'll be realistic. Sometimes it takes more than one type of medication or tweaking the dose. And that's not up to anybody here, but families will share that. Oh, we're trying something new. We're trying something different. It's not always like your bingo the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it works, my goodness, does it work? Mm-hmm. And And Mm -hmm. if you're on the fence about should we, shouldn't we, it's something to consider for sure. Mm -hmm.
6: Yeah, I think Mm -hmm. a lot of families I've um, worked with who, you know, there maybe is that attention piece and it might not be diagnosed yet, but Mm -hmm. [3] they do want to try all the things like maybe we're just not practicing enough, or maybe we're just, Mm -hmm. [3] you know, need to change the time of day or, um, you know, miss some of school so that it's not so much going on that day, you know, to really be able to focus on therapy. And Mm -hmm. [3] um, I think, you know, sometimes a lot of time is put in trying all those other things when, you know, you could also consider, yeah, some other kind of Mm -hmm. intervention, Mm -hmm. which also doesn't have to be forever. You can Mm -hmm. try Mm -hmm. and decide that, that. no, let's go back to, you know, tweaking some of those other things instead.
0: Yeah.
2: And I'm so happy you brought that up because just, specifically talking about ADHD medications, they, if you wean, like, I think a lot of parents are worried about side effects. A lot of my families that have tried it are like, my kid isn't the same anymore or whatever, but like, it's worth a try. Cause when you wean them off, there's, there's no long-term effects that are going to stay as, so mm-hmm. it's worth a shot to start off slow and see if that can actually make a difference mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a tool. It's a tool. It's a tool one yeah. of many
1: solutions. Um, and yeah. sometimes. Sometimes it's a tool that really, really helps, right? Yep, doesn't work for everybody, but sometimes. Yeah.
6: I had a session this morning, and it was kind of cute and funny at the time. But now I'm thinking about it again, and <laughs> it's a little bit like, oh, you know, I feel like I feel for him because, you know, I think mom said, you know, focus, and he says, I am focusing. Yeah. When everything you're doing looks nothing like focusing, but in his mind, he feels <laughs> he's, like he's,
1: he's
2: focusing, right? Bad. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh boy, I can picture it. Um, so sometimes there's another name for another cluster of noticeable things, and that name is autism spectrum or autism in general. And so let's talk about what happens when that diagnosis comes early versus when it comes later and how that affects families because we, it's, in the news and it's in the new AAP guidelines, just in case you're wondering, Mm -hmm. we'll have more to say on that in another episode. Um, but this is a huge one for families and there might be reasons that they want to go for it early or not. Um, what has, what have people's experiences here been like around looking for an ASD diagnosis or really, really not wanting to get an ASD diagnosis? What are people's thoughts on that?
4: Yeah, there was like nine questions in one mark. I know.
1: <laughs> I know.
3: I mean, I can just kick it off by yes. saying that I think the the idea of that second diagnosis for some yeah. parents, from this perspective, for some parents it's fine. It's like, oh, okay, there's, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a reason why my kid is mm-hmm. not behaving like other kids with Down syndrome I see, and they feel relieved when a therapist brings it up, mm-hmm. um, or a pediatrician. Um, but I think for other parents, it's really hard, you know, it's, it's a very difficult thing to wrap their head around that, but my child has down syndrome. That's what they have. And I've now just come to grips with that. Mm-hmm. And now you're telling me they have this other thing that is, you know, kind of scary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so some parents, it's just, it's a really, really tough thing to deal with. And so that's, mm-hmm. I just I think for you know educators and therapists, sometimes we, you know, we see these we see these signs, and we're pretty sure that that's what's going on. Um, but just being really careful about the way we bring it up yeah. with families, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And I and I I've I've heard yeah. some not so good stories about way not not of course anybody in this building, but but other therapists um, who who maybe aren't as aware of the the nuances of the dual diagnosis and Mm -hmm. you know when it's brought up to parents it's not in a super sensitive way and yeah it can just be really tough.
6: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think as far as like um, families that I've seen go through getting a a dual diagnosis um, just kind of that mindset and and we're trying to educate more and have more parents who have been through the experience to share that. Mm -hmm. Um, but that mindset that, you know, your child is still your child. Nothing has changed by calling it this. Mm -hmm. Um, instead we just have maybe a new set of insights that we can apply or more strategies that make more sense, Mm -hmm. um, you know, for the situation. So I think, yeah, as much as we can help people to, to see that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I think a lot of times parents feel kicked out of the group mm-hmm. of down syndrome parent um, and that's just not true there's actually far far more families who have this experience that maybe just don't share about it or it's just not known publicly mm-hmm. but it's around 17% mm-hmm. of people with Down syndrome also have autism Mm -hmm. Um, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. And so you're still in a group, (laughs) don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. And it's a a bit of a different group maybe, Mm -hmm. uh, but you're still in a group and we, as the DSRF are trying to do more to make sure that people know that it's a group and you're not just off on your own then Mm -hmm. when you Mm -hmm. get an additional Mm -hmm. diagnosis.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And has speaking to what Susan said earlier, like there's parents look at it so differently. I've had conversations and it is a very tough conversation to have. So Mm -hmm. like, how do you bring it up? It is something that is, it can be life changing and perspective changing for a lot of families. But I've had experiences where families are not ready for it. Don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. We're just, you know, and we make space for them. But then Mm -hmm. there's families that are like, have some families have an inkling that something is different or there's an additional thing to kind of think about. So there's just like this big sigh of relief when you finally have the conversation. She's like, yeah, I've been thinking about that. So, Mm -hmm. okay, deep breath. Right. So uh, let's talk about it. And then there's conversations with families like, yep, I feel like it's, this is the situation. I want my kid to get as much support as I can. Let's do this. So it's just like navigating, um, that conversation can be very tricky and we kind of want families that are listening to this to know about that that we 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 want to do it in the most respectful and you know safe way as possible Um, but it is something that you guys can also bring up if you're ever curious right like Mm -hmm. we can make the space for you to discuss it with you as well because there is a prevalence of it so it's good to kind of include it into the conversation.
4: Mm -hmm. And I think we're trying to do I mean, we're trying to do a better job at a lot of things, but we are trying to <laughs> include more information about mm-hmm. various kinds of dual diagnoses or various like forms of neurodiversity to absolutely make it just something that we speak about Odd. earlier and more often mm-hmm. so that it's in people's mind and in people's like kind of repertoire of things they might know more about because mm-hmm. yeah, by not talking about things it doesn't help (laughs) anything
2: yeah you're making Mm -hmm. it like more like like, it's just if we're we're hiding around or you know being scared about talking about it then it just makes us sound more scary right so if it's Mm -hmm. like okay let's just put it out there uh you know Marla and I did an interview with um uh, I think it was in our season five with a physician Dr. Noemi Spinazzi who said you know at a certain point we need to kind of now Think about Down or autism as being something we need to exclude, right? Like, let's just assume that it could be an issue. It could be something, an additional diagnosis for a population. Let's figure out a way to take it out of, you know.
7: Mm-hmm.
4: So, just a perspective shift, I think, sometimes mm-hmm. is needed, but it's slow. And I do think there's like a general perspective shift happening a little bit, and mm-hmm. you know, parents of kind of like you know the current generation that are parents and us all here in this room like also grew up I think during a time where there's a real lack of like representation yeah. in terms of diversity so a lot of misunderstanding around you know down syndrome alone and a lot of misunderstanding and and negative representations around um people of, with autism or autistic people and you know I think um it's hopefully all changing but very slowly yes and I just hope that some of that that fear goes away because mm-hmm. of course parents you know what they're to me to be bringing to the table is just wanting the best for their kids mm-hmm. like kind of no matter what mm-hmm. and whatever that means to them and of course that's influenced by you know what we hear about and see everywhere in society yeah, and so, you see the full picture of autism, exactly right? yeah mm-hmm.
7: Mm-hmm. yeah
5: mm-hmm. and I think everyone every I was just in a meeting with a family where <clears throat> we brought up the same topic yeah if they'd ever thought about um exploring that diagnosis of ASD and just speaking to kind of Riley, like, you know, it really is the family's choice because, it, because in that scenario, the family was, you know, they thought about it and they didn't think that getting the diagnosis at this point in this young person's life was going to change anything in the term in the way that uh, she attended school or the way that what services she received. So yeah, like it's it's interesting to think or just to to acknowledge and accept every family's kind of choice around it and absolutely Mm -hmm.
3: that's right and knowing that we all respect your decision whatever that is um Mm -hmm. as as the parents of this child and we are going to be good therapists and teachers for your kids no matter what Mm -hmm. you decide Mm -hmm. so don't be afraid to Mm -hmm. voice your opinion about it or or say if i'm if you're uncomfortable with you know um the the possibility of getting a dual diagnosis then it definitely doesn't need to happen yeah
4: yeah. And parents and often ask, like, one of the big questions is, oh, are you going to, like, how will this change, like, our treatment plan or what we're going to yes. be doing? And, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. just for parents to know that, like, since we all know about strategies that work for, you know, all sorts of, you know, learning learners like most likely the way that we see or treat or, you know, plan for your child won't change. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes, and especially here in BC, there's access to different resources out in the community, possibly, or in schools. Mm -hmm. But here, we're not going to change how we see or treat or teach a child before and after a diagnosis. A diagnosis,
1: yeah,
2: mm-hmm.
4: exactly.
1: I yeah. think it does though on the same on the
4: other side of the same coin it
1: absolutely impacts school. Yeah. There are many services through schools that require a label. I don't agree with that, but that is how it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there are behavior support services in school. There are, there's more EA time. There are, is more attention to what kind of visuals need to be there to make the day successful. That happens when you have an additional label. Mm-hmm. So yep. there, there's many, many things to consider. Um, yeah. but all right. You can so, still have a good, you can still get through your day. You can still, I don't yeah. think it's I don't want it to seem like, oh, this additional diagnosis means that like things are over. Mm -hmm. Um, You can still have a really fulfilling life. And I think at the DSRF, we're trying to make that clear too, Mm -hmm. that having an additional diagnosis is just part of life and people Mm -hmm. can still have a really wonderful time with their family Mm -hmm. and doing the things that they like to do. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's do a topic shift, you guys. Mm -hmm. All right. Now we're talking about another really good one um, AAC, which stands for Riley's eyes are like, yes, this is a great topic. Cause I feel like it, I would love to hear from our SLPs and from, from our teachers as well. But so for those of you who are not familiar, AAC stands for augmentative and alternative communication. Um, it is a hot topic, um, all the time at the DSRF mm. because there's lots of misconceptions about it. Um, but I would love to start off with our uh, resident SLPs here. What do you notice when students are set up with an AEC device that gets used?
1: You want to go for sure. Marla? I'll I'll go for it. <laughs> I I think you can you can say it in the in the relief of it. So what doesn't happen mm. when a student has a communication system that works for them and all the tools that they need, which may or may not be an AAC high-tech or low-tech device, they are calmer. They are less frustrated. The people around them understand effectively what they're trying to say. And the child has an easier day. Mm -hmm. They're more able to socialize. They can participate in class. They can ask for things in Unfamiliar environments more successfully. Um, The contrast to that is if somebody doesn't have an AAC device and they need one, then they're dependent almost exclusively on some person in their life Mm -hmm. who's going to translate for them. Mm -hmm. And that person needs to go everywhere and do everything with them essentially because they can't communicate effectively independently which is participation limiting and in socially limiting in a huge way and definitely Im- limits their education too mm-hmm. we feel very strongly about this soapbox over okay <laughs> oh i think you're just getting started i'm just, just getting, getting started <laughs>
2: they just <laughs> scratched the surface there, it's Marla.
4: <laughs> true <laughs> uh, riley what do you want to add Oh yeah. All of that. that. (laughs) But yeah, it's, it's, you know, we've already talked about like learning and growing and, you know, just, it's, it's such a interesting time because I think the entire like profession of speech and language pathology is learning and changing when it comes Mm to, um, you know, greater promotion and acceptance of AAC. So it's, um, you know, we're still in this period where, you know, there is like some doubt and misinformation and just misunderstanding about the strategy um, in general. And so, um, you know, we have all tried our best to just continue our education and, and work mm-hmm. on this as, you know, communication professionals. And it's surprising how intense the resistance can be from yes. other mm-hmm. professionals or schools sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really do understand why parents um, can can be resistant to this um, suggestion or not understand it because how how would you know everything um, that Mm -hmm. it is to know? But yeah, it's, it's interesting when we still hear that schools don't agree or don't want to implement it or think it's too much work or something like that. And I think um, oh,
2: that grinds my gears
4: (laughs) too much work. Yeah. And so, yeah. And what Marla said is, you know, so you ask schools, you ask parents, like, what is your biggest priority for your child? Like, what do you want to work on? What's your main goal? And in the population of people with down syndrome, 99% of the time it's communication, expressive Mm -hmm. communication. Mm -hmm. And so you offer um, a solution that of course is not a magic anything. It's, you know, takes work, it's something to learn, but um, can be a really good solution. Mm -hmm. And some, in some cases is like one of the only great solutions um, Mm -hmm. that's going to be very effective. And, um, and yeah, you can still get a you know people who a just like aren't, yeah just aren't sure um and and need, again you know we talk about giving people time but we need more time to think about it so
2: mm-hmm.
4: yeah. yeah and I think um there's an idea that if a child goes to speech therapy it's going to cause them to talk um
2: <laughs> yeah and, that's <laughs> yeah. a very good yeah could, would you mind expanding on that because that's a huge misconception that if they're going to start using an ac device they're not going to learn how to talk
4: yeah. And yeah, I, I think what Hina said is one of the pieces of kind of like misunderstanding and misinformation that still exists. And you hear it about, you know, all sorts of devices, visuals, but also about even just simple simply using sign language to support mm-hmm. somebody. Um, you hear all the time that um, if you use these strategies that it will... Um, like prevent or slow down the child's development of speech or, or um, expressive language. Susan's having the shivers, <laughs> um, and it's just you know. And this is part of you know the profession being young is that you know the research is a bit current or it's still in progress. Mm-hmm. Um, but all the research mm-hmm. that we have does highly suggest that using AAC or supporting expressive communication only helps. Um most people to improve their um, expressive language overall. Yeah. In a lot of cases, improve their their spoken language, but um, overall improve how much they can express themselves. Yeah. And, um, and so that's you know really good news. And sometimes it's just explaining that and people say, Okay, we're on board now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just needed that piece of information. But yeah. you know, there's so much that has to go into um, a person being able to use speech um, like verbal speech for their main form of communication. Um, you know, it's a physical process. It's a cognitive process. It's, uh, you know, there's nervous system involvement. And and when people are, especially young kids are are learning and growing, things aren't just always, um, set up for that to be successful for them as much as they need. So, you know, we have all these kids who have these great ideas, all these really Mm -hmm. important things they want to say and Mm -hmm. express and choose and, you know, comment on. And until they have a way that works for them, they're not going to be able to do that. So, um, you know, speech in people with Down syndrome often just comes online a little bit later. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there is this tendency to want to wait and see because we know that, Mm -hmm. you know, speech just continues developing and that's wonderful. Um, But there's this whole period of time when children are young and and growing in this area that they have things to say and ideas. And I think it's worthwhile for people to consider including AAC at younger ages, even if um, there's this idea um, that they may not need it for their whole lives, but it just lets them communicate Mm -hmm. um, now, reduce frustration now, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, and possibly improve their um, spoken Mm -hmm. and language Mm -hmm. overall so kind of like
2: technology has changed so Mm -hmm. much I'm sure even since your time of being an SLP like there's so many different versions of AEC even within an iPad right but on like this is my soapbox moment really quickly as an OT like on a fundamental level when you say we can't use a touch chat for example or an iPad because we don't know how to how to use it like on a fundamental level. That's it's like a human rights thing. Like mm-hmm, how can you take yeah. away a student's voice
7: mm-hmm.
2: when, the, and and it's fascinating. And I learned so much from you guys as SLPs, like how quickly some of our students can pick up on this stuff. If you mm-hmm. start early enough, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and they're just, I had a student the other day t- teaching me how to use touch chat. Mm-hmm. He's like in grade four, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He's like, oh yeah, this is what you do to find this. So it's just like how it just boggles my mind, how somebody can say, we don't want to, especially professionals, professionals yeah. and you OTs listening out there embrace AC otherwise I'm going to come and get you because <laughs> these, <it is> so <laughs> <impressed>. <laughs> I like I say I had a, uh, a yeah, parent the other day they're like oh what what would you need the iPad for I'm like this iPad needs to go with every everywhere your your little one goes mm-hmm. right like mm-hmm. I need to use it because I need to understand what they're saying mm-hmm. so it's like you can't we cannot we have to stop using that excuse of it's too hard for us to learn mm-hmm. get there's resources that can help you how to learn and mm-hmm. there's yeah. ways you can do it but no more of that excuse.
1: Yeah. Um, I think one of my, one of my biggest goals in my practice is always to match up as much as possible. Somebody's ability to have ideas with their ability to share those ideas. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of our little kids in particular, there's a huge mismatch. So the complexity of their thinking, what they want to be able to tell you about is much, much higher Mm -hmm. than their body's ability to like do the thing, make the sounds. Um, and so my job, is to find a way to match up those Mm -hmm. things as much as possible. Um, And the timing on that is kind of critical because your three and four and five-year-olds are starting school. They're going to preschool. And if you can try and imagine that situation for yourself where you want to say things and nobody understands what you're trying to say and it's all day and it's every day, you're not going to like that place. Right. And we, like we said, we want that relationship with education to go well and Mm -hmm. it can go well. Mm -hmm. So we want to use all the tools, everything we possibly can to allow our students to express what they're really thinking. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's another misconception that, when we use AAC, we should make the child really compliant and answer and model the things that we want to hear as the educators and like, here, give me the best answer when really the kid's like, this is boring. And then we need to provide space for that too, because we want it to be really genuine. Right. And we want kids to have a full range of expression, Mm -hmm. which might be things like, I don't want to do this right now. And maybe it's not what you will hope to hear as their SLP, but it's valid. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. And that's really important.
2: And I think, yeah, I was just going to say to our teachers, like I, I think it's so valuable to learn how you guys incorporate
6: AAC and what have you learned with using it
2: with your clients as well.
6: Yeah, I was going to say just, um, you know, after we get past that, yes, we're on board with it. There definitely is still that piece from professionals and parents and, and other individuals who don't understand how to use it or, you know, um, you know even all of the value values behind it you know having your own voice this is not just a worksheet for someone who can't print or can't speak the things that they're putting into it that um, this is their voice um, how do we help them to learn this and get over that it's too hard or which I think is often more um, often some kind of insecurity in the professional I don't know how to do it I'm not willing to you know I'm I feel vulnerable trying I don't look bad. <laughs> technology. Yeah. Is not, I mean, yeah.
5: perfection.
6: Mm-hmm. Again, I had a student yesterday who I did something that I've never done, trying to program a button. Like this is new,
1: but good for you. Yeah, okay. all but new to me. But I'm like, it. oh,
6: it erased the letter. Like, <laughs> so I had to. Walk this poor boy around the building trying to find an SOP to fix the <laughs> problem that I did. But now I feel, you know, so just, you know, I guess just creating a space where it's okay for everyone to do what we talked about earlier, build rapport, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, use the things, make it fun. It doesn't have to be, you know, used to its 100% full <laughs> capacity from the beginning. It can just be exploring and and getting to know it and, and yeah, just be...
7: Mm -hmm.
1: And that's a really good point. It is not an overnight tool. Mm -hmm. By by any stretch of the imagination, it takes a lot of time to really, for the adults to learn it and the children to learn it. And that Mm -hmm. is okay because we still know that it's one of the most effective tools that we have. It is worth it. It And I think it's also good
6: for the student who's using AAC Mm -hmm. to see that you don't know what you're doing, <laughs> yeah. right? But like yeah. I, I mean, can teach you something or, you know, it's okay that I don't know how to find all the find words. Let's yeah. figure out what how do to do it. Let's, yeah, model the process. And I that was just
5: frustration... Oh. Sorry, Susan. It's okay. Just that I, I try to use that those moments where when I'm trying to find a word and I can't find a word, that frustration, like, I just take that second to realize, like, how frustrating it could be for that individual who has to mm. use the AAC. You know, all that's the their, like... That's their experience on Mm -hmm. a very consistent Mm -hmm. basis. And Mm -hmm. if you can't, you know, if we as teachers and professionals can't embrace that moment of frustration and take that second to find the word, like, yeah, then what are we doing? You know?
1: Yeah. And a side note from that is, oh my gosh, do SLPs love questions? So, you know, come find us, come ask us. We, yeah, this is an area that we like to talk about and we're happy to help out. So if it feels uncomfortable and weird, then find your SLP Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. see if they have some tips for you, Mm -hmm. um, to try and make it a little bit easier, but it is a process.
6: Well, I will be hunting you down because I still did not fix the problem. (laughs) No problem.
3: I was just going to say from a, the mental health perspective and from a self-esteem perspective, why not give these guys, you know, the chance to be masterful at something, yeah. right? And yeah. to be able to show your teacher or, yeah. or other kids in your class how you are able to build a whole sentence with this cool thing on your iPad, yeah. right? And yeah. I just feel like that's, so good for for other people's perspective their their perception of our kids with Down syndrome, but also for their own self esteem mm-hmm. they don't get a chance very often to feel masterful no. at something
2: and i mean and then just how powerful it must feel to be understood. Right. So mm-hmm. when I ask, like, how are you? Or they're trying to tell me something on their iPad. I'm like, oh, yeah. And it's just like that look in their eye. They're like, you get me mm-hmm. like we I think we take it for granted. Right. Like it's we, mm-hmm. we're understood for the most part. But like it's just for someone who it's so difficult for them, like Riley said, to do that expressive communication piece. But if they have this tool to be able to be understood, mm-hmm. like, why would you not want to use that all the time? Mm-hmm. Right, so. I think
4: what a lot of people have touched on is the fact that, you know, this is not an overnight thing. It takes mm-hmm. a lot of input, a mm-hmm. lot of learning. So, you know, my last soapbox moment is that <laughs> if, you know, we don't want to do device dumping where we just give somebody a device or a program and yeah. say, go and have fun. Have fun. <laughs> um, but if, you, if this is something that you think is right for your like family and your child or your student, um, that... What we call communication partner training—just taking that time to train everybody who's going to be using it Mm. with the child, who's going to be there and available to help teach the child Mm -hmm. um, to use the device, understand the purpose—as you guys um, said—is it it can't be missed. So taking that time to invest in the background training again—it seems like oh, we're taking three sessions, four sessions to do all of this, you know, chatting, planning, yeah. um, learning, and it's it's a super good use of time because, like, holy cow, does the whole thing go way better yeah. <laughs> when we spend
6: that time? Yeah, And we can also be really purposeful in how we spend those times teaching, right? You know, in the classroom, getting peers involved mm-hmm. um, so that they are also communication partners. There's lots you can do that will make that a meaningful experience for everyone mm-hmm. um, and not just time that's, you know taken to to do this thing that not mm-hmm. everyone has to do.
1: You're absolutely right. And I think I'm going to I'm going to say a hard thing here. Um but it, it's an important one probably and that is that not every person with down syndrome develops verbal communication that's easily understood by other people. We would love for that to be the case and mm-hmm. we can do therapy until our mouths fall off. I don't know, but (laughs) it's for some students, it doesn't happen. And it's not the parent's fault and it's not the student's fault. They're not lazy. Yeah. It, there are other neurological things. There are speaking is very complicated process. That's why we have to learn about it in school. Components, Uh, components, components everywhere. (laughs) Um, and you know, if you're holding out when the kid is little thinking maybe they don't really need this. Maybe you're right. When the child has reached an older school age and they're still not able to communicate effectively with the people that they really need to family members, their EA it's, it's really worth thinking about it again because Mm -hmm. the long-term implications of not being able to communicate effectively with anyone are not good. They're, Mm -hmm. they're really isolating. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can speak a little bit to that, Susan. Yeah, what happens?
3: Yeah, I was actually just going to say about that. I'm glad you mentioned the because a lot of our kids will definitely develop some kind of verbal language. That's that's almost always the case. But the intelligibility piece, the ability to be understood by others, is the is the really tricky part. Mm -hmm. Um, And that you know, for parents who. And, and siblings of a child with Down syndrome who know that person very, very well, it probably isn't often that hard to mm-hmm. understand what they're mm-hmm. talking about because you have context and you know them really well and you've heard their speech a bazillion times. Mm-hmm. But but them being able to actually communicate with other people outside the family effectively is what you really want to think about. Like yeah. as a parent, yeah, okay, I can understand my child, so they don't need an AAC device, right, mm-hmm. is something we hear. Well, I, I understand him yeah. okay so it's fine mm-hmm. I know what he needs right I know what he wants I can anticipate those things but you know are you going to be able to do that when you're when your son or daughter is 20 or 25 right you, yeah. you need to think more long yeah long-term. and also how,
6: how do you know how much you're limiting by just right giving them that but, voice to yeah. communicate the things that you already know back yeah. to
1: that mismatch right yeah Where we think we know yeah. everything that they want to talk about, but we probably don't. Yeah. I mean, realistically, we don't know everything that they yeah. would ever want to say ever. Yeah. Right. And yeah. think about yeah. employment. Think yeah. about friends. Right. Yeah. And we want those things for
4: people with Down syndrome if they want them. Yeah. Right. Two terms that those comments bring up for me back from school, <laughs> <laughs> uh, good old grad school, are it's the idea mm-hmm. that you know we you know based on research, we found out that, you know, humans in society tend to judge people's intelligence by what they're able to say and the intelligibility of their speech and things like that. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you might be limiting um, people because of people's like, unfortunately negative perceptions of what it is that they're, um, you know, thinking of their cognitive levels and stuff like that, when there might be a lot more happening. Um, And also the idea of communication autonomy, which is, I think, what Susan was talking about. And, you know, that's the, concept that says that, you know, everybody deserves to be able to say whatever they want to Mm -hmm. whoever they want, whenever they want. Um, And if we are only kind of providing students the chance to communicate about things that we have pre-printed visuals for or just something that's (laughs) super structured or very familiar and we might be, yeah, we're just missing a lot of what might be going on for them. Mm
5: -hmm. And it's so easy to misinterpret Mm -hmm. as well, like what Yesterday I was I came into the summer camp program and I'll just call him Billy. Billy what I interpreted was waving at me and I was like, "Oh, hi Billy." And I was trying to engage with him and then he looked at me, picked up his iPad with his um his AAC device on it and I <laughs> found the word goodbye and, goodbye. and I was like, oh, you're, and I was like, all right, Billy, goodbye. Because great example. he didn't want to talk about, yeah. that, and that's totally fine. Oh, yeah. so awesome. Yeah. So I think, yeah. Such a great example.
2: That's awesome. <laughs> uh, so now we're going to move on to another very, very big topic. I feel like I'm saying this about all the topics, which is why we're doing this episode, because they're all huge. Um, Susan, you alluded to this just a little bit when we were talking about AAC, but mental well and mental health for our people with Down syndrome. Tell us all about it. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. What, um, what are, yeah, like I would love to kind of just talk a little bit about, you know, why is it so important to think about mental health at a younger age, not only when they're transitioning from high school to adulthood? Yeah.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, it goes... Right alongside what I was saying about behavior before, what I think a lot of us said about behavior before, that we want to think of things preventatively or at an early intervention sort of in that sort of mindset rather than trying to deal with it later once kids are already, you know, depressed or anxious or those kinds of things. Mm Because those definitely, um, those diagnoses happen in, in people with Down syndrome for sure. Um, but th- there's lots of things that parents and, and educators at school and um, out in the community and us as therapists, we can all be doing um, mm-hmm. for for people with Down syndrome to help them have good mental health. Um, definitely one of them is um, my biggest one, like if we have time for not much else, um, tell your kids they have Down syndrome. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. It's so important. It's, um, I can't, I can't really stress it enough. Mm -hmm. It's really important. I, I would say, you know, probably in early elementary school is when I would first, I mean, you guys can all chime in too, but that's when I would first say that it's, it's important to sort of start, um, talking about it just, and just, you know the the reason why you want to do it is because otherwise that little person is walking around and wondering how come everything is so much harder for me? Mm-hmm. why can't I throw a ball as far as my other as far as the other kids in my class? Why is my younger sister talking more than I am mm-hmm. and i'm not saying they're they're you know thinking these exact things in their head in that kind of language. But I think there's still a sense. These are really empathetic kids. They pick up on emotions. They pick up really well on um, what other people are doing. They pay really close attention mm. to what other people are doing, mm-hmm. and um, I think they know. I think they. I, I know they know um, that they're that they're different. And so, if they have no reason why, mm-hmm. then they start feeling kind of crummy about themselves, mm-hmm. right? And it. I think for me, it's probably the biggest contributor to low self-esteem in our teens, right? Mm -hmm. And you have all heard this story, but, you know, one of the main reasons I went back and did a PhD was because I had, you know, I'd been a speech therapist for kids here for a long time. You know, I had them since they were, you know, five or six years old, and they were always these, like, delightfully happy little kids, and, you know, they would do all these, it, I'm making it sound like I've had only easy, mm-hmm. you know, straightforward tweets in not my true. therapy know sessions. That's not true. Yeah. But, but I'm just saying, <laughs> some of them sort of behaved this way. And then they got to be teenagers, and I would pull out a mirror to start working on a speech sound beside them, mm. and they would close the mirror mm. and they'd say something like, you know, I hate my face, mm-hmm. or um, I'm so ugly. Um, yeah. or something like that. And then it would come out that, you know, they didn't really know why their face looked different than anybody else, mm-hmm. but, but they knew that it did. Yeah. So, um, and they, they didn't want to, they didn't want to look at themselves anymore. So it's just a really important thing to do. Um, And then in terms of kind of how to do it, because I know that's, that's, that's a tricky thing is just being honest about it. You know, what is it? Give them the facts. Mm-hmm. And You can sort of, you know, tailor your, the way you talk about it with your child um, based on what their kind of cognitive level is Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and what they're able to understand at the time. Um, You know, you don't have to go into genetics necessarily, unless your kid is really into science. And we definitely have some kids Mm -hmm. here who are, Mm -hmm. Um, what you want to definitely avoid is the, and unfortunately I've heard this so many times is people who say things like, you know, well, it's just like some people have blue eyes and Mm. some people have brown eyes. Some people have Down syndrome and some people don't. And that's just not true, Mm -hmm. first of all. Um, And and I think it's really important to acknowledge that there are really crummy things about having Down syndrome, Mm -hmm. right? There are some good things about it. Like, you know, they get to come here and have fun with all of us because we're, you know, we're also great. But there are some really (laughs) crummy things about it. So I think just being honest about that is, yeah. is really important. So that was with regard to kind of prevention of mental health issues. Mm-hmm. That's, my, that's my number one soapbox, mm-hmm. I would say.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a
2: very important soapbox, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Any other thoughts about that particular thing? Have you guys had experiences with that question
1: with your clients or your students? I find that students who have a more positive self-regard, mm-hmm. so they have higher self-esteem, mm-hmm. are more likely to have friends. Mm-hmm. They're more likely to do social activities. It could be sports. It could be arts. It could be anything. Mm-hmm. They're more likely to feel that they can be employed. Um, so I don't think overestimating how much self-esteem is mm-hmm. important is possible you mm-hmm. know w- mm-hmm. it's a big factor in any teen and young adult's life
2: yeah and I think there's more thankfully there's more and more representation out there mm-hmm. for people with Down syndrome for them to look up to someone else being really successful doing things so I think that helps it does with, with that that's a well. really
3: good point you know, yeah, it really is. Yeah. And yeah. it kind of helps so much us. more than when I first started. Yeah. here, Where there was nobody in mm-hmm. media. Right. Mm-hmm. Ever. Yeah. You never saw kids with Down syndrome and gap commercials or no. whatever.
2: No. Yeah. Yeah. Or those that are like have their own businesses and are just like out there, you know, yeah. doing amazing things. So I think helping that helping your kids understand that the the possibility that there are lots of possibilities out there there's lots of good things and but keeping it realistic I, I like that you mentioned that that it is going to be hard for you
5: mm-hmm.
2: at certain times but it doesn't mean that you still can't do it you just might need a little extra help right mm-hmm. um but yeah I think that's a really important part
6: I think also bringing you know that representation closer to them in um, mm-hmm. uh, allowing them to explore friendships with that have mm-hmm. down syndrome and to see themselves in other people.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I'm so yeah. glad you mentioned cool. that. That's yeah. our, that's our final topic. <laughs> Danielle. So yeah, we want to talk about friends. Um, really like everyone, everywhere, um, people with down syndrome benefit from having friends. Which sounds very obvious, but it is something that can get missed because often we're so focused on work and learning things that are hard and new things. Um, but friends who share interests and friendships that are genuine are so important. Um, who who wants to start here? Do we want to start with Riley this time? From a from a communication perspective, we do. A, we try to do things that support. Friendships. Um, can you talk a little bit about what kinds of things might happen when we're trying to support
4: new friends. Sure, um, I think there's a lot that can be said about this topic, and it does <laughs> change uh, drastically depending on which age group you're targeting. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to see a lot of younger kids uh, because I love them. <laughs> but you know, um, we're thinking we've been talking about some difficulties with like expressive communication and language and all this kind of stuff, and um, I think parents, you know, or adults in general, because we're used to friendships as being a lot about conversation, asking questions, like all this kind of high level stuff. It's difficult. um, And it's just really good to keep in mind that for kids, for children, um, you actually don't need to talk that much to have a lot of fun um, Mm -hmm. with other kids. So, um, you know, often people are asking about, you know, preschool or early elementary schools, like, how do we get them to say this and this to their friend or something like that? And, you know, sometimes um, when we go and observe and we can point out that, wow, look, they're having a lot of fun just playing it might be more physical play but like this child and that child they're both smiling a lot and Mm. laughing a lot and they're taking turns in this this way um you know kids in general um tend to be quite empathetic and they accept and understand a lot of nonverbal communication so it's totally okay to um like encourage that type of play and and roll with that type of communication um for younger people and then when um, i think you know as kids get older or you know social interactions get more complex in different ways thinking just a bit specifically and strategically about what um, communication supports could help them to um, be successful where things might be challenging so taking a critical look at what interactions they're having in their day in their school or their home or environment wherever um, and finding out like where do things break down where do things go wrong um, is rejection happening and, and is there some specific kind of intervention plan support we can put in place to, to fix that? I'm struggling to think of a really good example. <laughs> um, but like, you know, for example, for the child who, um, might, you know, be pushing or grabbing something when they're, you know, mm-hmm. other kids, their age aren't doing that type of interaction anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a specific, um, sign or, Picture communication. Anything that we could do that the ch- that's within the child's abilities to teach them to express what they're trying to express in a more you know quote unquote um, acceptable way. I need to say that in a better way, but you know in a way that other kids will accept and and kind of avoid that rejection moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's really well put. And sometimes it's very simple stuff like a picture that says my turn and practicing that and learning around those things. And sometimes in our older students and teenagers, it's like, oh, this student only wants to talk about that thing that they really, really, really love, regardless of who they're with. And that makes peers a little bit more challenging because if you get two peers and they love different topics, then how do we find this common ground and how do we relate? Mm -hmm. And a lot of that has to be taught explicitly, right? Like you can talk about this thing you love a little bit, but we're also gonna ask, you know, our friend about something that they might like to do and practicing finding commonalities is Mm -hmm. something that we do a lot with teenagers right Mm -hmm. and pointing those things out like oh my gosh you guys both love pizza Mm -hmm. like that's amazing and then what could we do together that involves this thing we both love Mm -hmm. right and making that explicit um really helps to build friendships in in Mm -hmm. older students too Mm
6: -hmm. Yeah. yeah i was just gonna say that i find it interesting that um you know especially in, like, IEP meetings, there's a lot of talk around, you know, Mm. this student will learn how to take turns or, Mm -hmm. you know, ask a friend to play Mm -hmm. when I'm sure there's at least 50% of the class who also needs to learn how to Uh, take turns (laughs) (laughs) and ask a friend to play (laughs) and talk about things that are of interest to both of them. So, yeah, like, just really widening that opportunity for um, making friendships and and Mm -hmm. learning about I don't know, effective, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, relationship strategies. That that sounds really clinical, but you know, like Mm -hmm. being a friend, um, it, it, goes both ways and it's not always about the person with Down syndrome or the person with special needs to accommodate the other people in your yes. life. Preach.
2: Yes, Danielle, yes. preach. Yes. Exactly. Yes. The, the onus does cannot not. be on the kids with Down syndrome, no. please.
7: Yes.
1: yes. Very good. You're absolutely... Yes, thank yeah. you so much for saying that. The onus <laughs> does not have to be on our <laughs> students all the time and <laughs> our families feel that really hard <laughs> and <laughs> they get really upset about this kind <laughs> of thing. Like, why is it always <laughs> my child who has to... You you know conform to the rest of the group when we all know that it is harder for them yeah. and so yes at your IEP meetings you can push a little bit and say, "Hmm, I wonder if the whole class could benefit from turn-taking learning, and why don't we address this at the classroom yeah. level?"
6: And also, maybe they would enjoy not conforming a little bit too. Yeah. Like yeah. it doesn't have to look like yes. I don't know what we're used to, yeah, all the it's time. Changing. Yeah, because that communication
4: partner training can really go into the social skills and social mm. interaction skills as well, mm-hmm. and be for everybody in mm-hmm. one ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: We can mm-hmm. all learn to be better friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was just curious what your thoughts were on this, the idea that it's great to have typically developing peers as friends, but also great to have other peers with Down syndrome as your friends as well and how that changes as they get older. Did you, just, did I, you I would want love to, to talk about go that. Go for it. Sure. <laughs>
3: um, I, that's something that I, I think you know, all of us in this room, because we have been doing this for a long time and we've seen, you know, it's it, all of the kids that we see here, we tend to see on an ongoing basis, right? And so we watch them develop and we watch what happens to their friendships and mm-hmm. and things as they get older. And I think that an important thing to distinguish is the difference between real friendships and being popular at school. Mm-hmm. And so lots of parents will say to us, and I think all, you know, you're all now because lots of them will say, oh, she knows she's so popular at school and everyone loves her and mm-hmm. she like gets high fives every time she goes down the hallway and, mm-hmm. and, you know, everybody just wants to be around her and they think she's so Help cute. Her. And, yeah. and, mm-hmm. and as a therapist listening to parents say that now at this stage in my career um, here at DSRF I mean, that's lovely, but there's always something now in the back of my brain where that unsettles me. It makes me feel uncomfortable because Mm -hmm. what ends up happening most of the time, and this is why, and I never say anything about it, but it's why this forum is so great because I don't have a parent actually standing in front of me, (laughs) but it's basically (laughs) like you know, you, you you are listening to them say this and you're thinking in your head, but I know what will happen, mm. right? I know what will happen is that, They're loved right now, but then as soon as they hit around grade four, the gap between the child with Down syndrome and the other kids in the class becomes too big Mm -hmm. in terms of their interests, in terms of their communicative abilities. I'm generalizing a little bit here. It's not always Mm -hmm. grade four, Mm -hmm. um, but eventually that gap will get wider. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it is crucially important that those, the kids with Down syndrome start to build relationships with the people who will eventually be their peer group, which is not typically developing kids; mm. it's kids with developmental disabilities. Mm. And so, the earlier you can start to foster um, those kinds of relationships and create opportunities um, for for those kinds of relationships, the mm-hmm. the relationships amongst kids who are all who all have developmental disabilities, the better off your child is going to be,
7: mm-hmm.
3: right? And yeah. and so that's just. It feels good to just get that just out. Just to get that it off. Really yeah. it's, it's hard, and it's yeah. sad, and we don't want to break any family's no. heart. Um,
1: but what we really care about is a balance in in like power dynamics and friendship, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. for a friendship to really be genuine, you know, it's not just one child or teen sort of putting up with or appeasing another mm-hmm. one or talking about My Little Pony for a little while or whatever. We would love for both people to be sort of like equally excited Mm -hmm. about the same things Mm -hmm. in a really genuine way. And in the instances where people with Down syndrome maintain friendships with typically developing people all the way through the end of high school, that's not a bad thing, but people who do that, those people leave. They do. They They move away. They get married. They move off to university. And And it is devastating. It is. Mm -hmm. And
7: Mm -hmm.
1: that that's not the time to start building Mm -hmm. friendships with other people with Down syndrome. Also because then what we sometimes see is that people with Down syndrome like, well, I don't want to be friends with other people with Down syndrome. Right. Right. And that's problematic in itself. And Mm -hmm. then you're really up a, really up a tree at that point. Um, It's a problem. And And it can be prevented. It can be a both and, right. It doesn't have to be an either or. Mm -hmm.
5: No. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, we've seen some families do that piece really well where they connect the kids at a younger age Mm -hmm. and I think especially at a center like us where where we're located we have families coming in from all over um our city right so I think the geography can or like your location can be a real barrier to supporting those Mm friendships at at a younger age Mm because it doesn't necessarily you know and for anyone going to your high school or your elementary school, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get along with the people that you're at that school with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was going to, yeah. So I think as much as you can do to support and put time in to connect your child with other people with developmental mm-hmm. disabilities or what have you, um, just putting that time to help them and give them the opportunities to connect, yeah. And I was gonna say, like, you don't need a ton of friends. My mom yeah. always said, you just need one good one, mm-hmm. and yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's still a true. Very valid point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's very. And my general. last point. <laughs> finally, um, I was just gonna say, like, <laughs> observing some of, some of our adult students now and kind of watching mm. them develop their relationships where they've met people at different programs or in our classes here or at mm-hmm. jobs. Um, what's been really cool to see is that now and again it, it was always a barrier because they all lived over across the city and some didn't transit and they had to re- rely on parents driving them etc but now with you know video calling and facetime you really see these relationships get to develop a bit more because now they have that opportunity to connect yeah instead outside of and having to yeah it. exactly yeah. so yeah.
2: it's been yeah it's really
7: been
5: cool to see them
7: do
2: and it. i and i think that it's if you think about our friendship circles like my most genuine friendships are with people that maybe we may not agree on everything or we may not think exactly alike but we're on s- somewhat of a, a similar level right so who's to say that your friendships with another person with a developmental disability cannot be just as meaningful if not more so than mm-hmm. a typically developing mm-hmm. peer like Marla had mentioned because you're you know you're kind of thinking about you know, common interests and how we look at things. And so if thinking about it from that perspective can sometimes make it a little bit easier to to digest like, okay, maybe they'll have more friends with developmental, or you do different things with different friends, right? Like some friends I'll just see occasionally, some I will, you know, hang out with more often. So it, it can be both, but I think it's so important you brought up the fact that at a certain point when that transition happens and those typically developing peers are often doing their own thing, We need to avoid that Mm -hmm. pitfall Mm -hmm. at that time. So yeah.
4: I think part of our job or part of the work that goes into it is starting to kind of change that vision or helping parents to envision what a friendship could look like that's not solely based on like conversation and Mm -hmm. you know, because Mm -hmm. I think that's how a lot of adults just in learn to interact and you kind of forget about it (laughs) or it's hard to, hard to picture what um, another um, type of really valuable friendship could look like. Um, I don't have, there's not a magical answer because we see just a plethora of wonderful relationships Mm -hmm. that look so different, but um, a big, a common theme is to find somebody, you know, think about finding somebody who shares a similar sense of humor with Mm -hmm. your child. Um, A lot of, um, a lot of fun times and and positive interactions kind of come from just Um, Having, uh, you know, being able to show and somebody appreciate your sense of humor, um, which can include a lot of nonverbal stuff or, you know, modified verbal stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Also not to be afraid of finding situations, you know, if you're not sure where to start, you don't know anybody um, who thinks you think would be a great fit to be a friend with your son or daughter. Um, Or child, then um, it's okay to look for those kind of facilitated and more organized situations or Mm -hmm. events or clubs or groups um, where some of these interactions can be a bit facilitated that are based on shared experiences, not Mm -hmm. just, you know, putting two people with Down Syndrome or other developmental disabilities in a room together and expecting (laughs) we'll get along, (laughs) which I think unfortunately is sometimes Mm -hmm. something to watch out for in schools where they'll create groups thinking that these two people who share just a diagnosis diagnosis (laughs) are going to like each other. Totally. Mm -hmm. And we just know that that cannot, that that is not true. It's wonderful when it happens,
6: but Mm -hmm. I thought that the, yeah, the word you used about, um, oh, they're really popular, right? Mm -hmm. I think that goes with typically developing relationships as well. You Mm -hmm. can label someone as really popular, but it doesn't mean that they have meaningful below the surface relationships with the people that adore them, right? Mm -hmm. They could also feel very lonely. So just, yeah, yeah, figuring out, like Riley said, those things that they do have in common with whoever they choose Mm -hmm. to be friends with Mm -hmm. and yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. And, you know, sometimes... Like Riley was describing, the friendships don't look conventional. That doesn't mean that people aren't having an amazing time. I can think of a couple of guys from a class that Eleanor and I taught a long time ago, like a decade ago, and they would get together and they would just kind of riff off each other and Mm -hmm. have their like one-liner inside jokes, and Mm -hmm. it was a lot of like cupcake, shortcake, cake, and like I didn't know what was happening. I don't think Eleanor knew what was happening either. But what was clear was they were having a great yeah. time yeah. and they were so enjoying Connecting being together. On they their own looked forward to it every time and mm-hmm. that is genuine friendship and
2: they're still and they're still best friends. friends and yeah. they hang out and they do stuff together and the cupcake jokes
1: still, still are going going strong over there yeah. <laughs> but you know what yeah. it's valid it's a yeah. it's a genuine friendship and it's something that's served both of them yeah for what like a decade now yeah. so great yeah
5: mm-hmm Mm-hmm. I love right. those guys. They remember all the details too. They, they know each other's birthdays. They celebrate yeah. them. I
2: mean, seriously, like how meaningful of a friendship is that when you know details about your friend yeah. and you yeah. could like, that's just such a bond, right? They you watch can't hockey run. games, they
1: watch, drink beer. Just, <laughs> yeah. Well, have a great time. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. Well, we appreciate all of you guys coming and mm-hmm. soapboxing with us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Hopefully for parents who have listened this far and it's been a long time that we've been chatting <laughs> now, um, you come away with some ideas around like, Oh, you know what? I think this thing is important and I'm going to act on this. Yeah. And this other thing I'm going to, you know, I thought it was important and maybe I'm going to let it rest for a little bit here. Yeah. Yeah. But, but,
3: no, just, guilt, but no, no guilt though. Guilt. no That's exactly. my last, my last yeah. word. Please. I have, sorry. I had to get one
1: more
2: no, in there. No, no, no guilt it. for parents.
1: One. Yeah. No, we're all
2: Don't learning things guilty. every day. That's right. Everybody, yeah.
1: Everybody's yeah.
4: learning new this things. This is just yeah. a
2: few things that we've learned and we're like, you know what? We're just going to share them. Come talk to us. This is a safe space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think we should redo
4: this episode in a year or two and say everything that we said today that was wrong. And we learned (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that's probably going to happen.
2: Yes, absolutely. I think that's a really, really important point that we are not coming from a place of like, we know everything. This is just Mm. based off our experience. And that's why... I love working here because it's a collaboration not only amongst us as professionals, but you as parents and caregivers. You need to tell us about your experiences and what you're learning and we can work on it together. But it's just a few things that I think after years and years of working there, there are some patterns and things that we're like, oh, it's interesting. Let's Mm -hmm. just bring it up for consideration. Mm -hmm.
5: Shout out to the parents. Shout out to the parents.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And to all of our kids and students, too, for working really hard. So. Yeah, but yeah, thank you again, you guys so much. It was a pleasure Always. and hopefully we will
1: having, having you us. back on
5: again. Mm-hmm. All right.
1: The Lowdown, a Down Syndrome podcast, can be found on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe today so you never miss an episode and let us know what you think by leaving a rating and a review. Be sure to visit the webpage for this episode at dsrf.org podcast for additional resources related to the topic. You can also follow DSRF Canada on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube for updates from the Lowdown and the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation.
0: Want to know more about Down Syndrome? Class is now in session at DSRF's online learning portal powered by Thinkific. Users have called DSRF's resource brilliant, fantastic, and absolutely first class. Now, our educational platform puts these tools right at your fingertips. Start with our free introductory course, Down Syndrome 101 or dive deep into the issue that matters most to you by enrolling in subjects like mental health or relationships and sexuality for people with down syndrome each course guides user through video audio and written resource to help you better understand and support the person in your life with down syndrome all courses and subscriptions include access to the dsrf circle of support Through this social community, user can interact and learn from one another and engage directly with DSRF. So what are you waiting for? Class is about to begin and there's an empty desk just for you. Visit dsrf.org slash to sign up today got questions, we have answers. 321's Canada's Down Syndrome magazine brings leading-edge expertise from Canada's top Down Syndrome professionals, as well as parents and people with Down Syndrome, direct to your inbox four times per year. Brought to you by the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation and Canadian Down Syndrome Society. 321 tackles issues important to people with Down syndrome and their families at every stage of life, from mental and physical health and development, relationships, employment, independence, and more. We will equip you to explore whatever your future holds. 321 magazine information and inspiration for Canada's Down Syndrome community. Download the latest issue and subscribe for free at dsrf.org magazine. The Lowdown, the Down Syndrome podcast, is a production of Down Syndrome Research Foundation. Learn more at dsrf.org and join the conversation at dsrfcanada on Twitter. Facebook, and Instagram. The Lowdown is hosted by Marla Fodan and Hannah Mahmood, and is produced by Glenn Hughes. The Lone Down theme music and just do was written and recorded by Rick Scott.